Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It's hard sometimes to know how to put a price on things. It's hard to know how to accurately value things. If you've ever wondered whether or not the thing you want is worth the price that you have to pay for it, and you ask people, is it worth it? Oftentimes, the way they reply is, things are worth whatever people pay for them. That's the pragmatic answer. Things are worth whatever people will pay for them. But there's a problem with that way of thinking. Uh, actually, two problems. The first is that we, we are notoriously poor judges of value. I don't know about you, but I've I've spent lavishly on things that, objectively speaking, were not worth nearly as much as I was willing to give for them. We often put a premium on things that, in the larger scheme, are pretty worthless. And oftentimes, we discount things that are actually priceless. We only realize it in hindsight. Classic example would be, how many times have you heard of people who work their whole life to get ahead, and then in retirement discover that the real pleasures and benefits of life are the the love, the experience that they had with their family, the things that they missed out on over those years of striving. So we're poor judges of value, but also our sense of value fluctuates and it changes. Like Things that once mattered a great deal don't matter as much to us anymore. And and we come to appreciate things greatly that we once placed little value on. Local real estate's a good example of this. I feel like every day here in our area, I have another conversation about how insane house prices are. You look around the neighborhood and you see houses and you hear how much they're selling for and you think, I can't imagine that trashy little house sold for that much. And then you go back and look at your own trashy little house and you start doing the numbers. And say, well, maybe it's time to sell. It just seems impossible. Like this can't be sustained, surely. The only problem, of course, is you can sell, but then you also have to live somewhere, right, in the meantime. And so it all balances out. I mean, would you, should you be thinking about selling your home right now? Is it worth what people are willing to pay? Will it be worth what people are paying today in five years? That's a good question. These things change. They fluctuate. When you're caught up in the moment, it's easy to give too much for something. You can convince yourself to pay more than you can afford. We're poor judges of value. In the same way, sometimes what we've committed to, maybe it was worth what it was worth at the time, but a year from now, two years from now, it won't be worth what we gave up for it because values fluctuate. I'm not trying to counsel you on whether or not you should sell your house or buy a house these days. What I want you to think about is that problem of putting an accurate price on something. Quoting an accurate value. Because when you break it all down, that's what Zechariah 11 is about. Everything that we've just read, shepherds and staffs and flocks for slaughter, all of that stuff symbolically is speaking about this question of right valuation. What is the price that we put on the things in our lives? 
What is the value of a flock of sheep in the eyes of a sheep dealer? What price would the dealer place on the lives of the sheep? What is the value of a good shepherd to those sheep? What price would the sheep pay to have a good shepherd? What is the value of the flock to a good shepherd? These are all the questions simmering beneath the surface in this prophecy. As you read Zechariah 11, you encounter a genre of prophecy that we're familiar with already from Zechariah. It's the, it's the kind of prophecy where God tells the prophet to act out the symbols in real life. There are other examples that we've talked about. Uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah both have to do this. Hosea famously has to do this, where he has to go and, and marry a woman in order to illustrate God's bad relationship with Israel. So his real life is going to reflect the larger message that God is sending. He's going to be living out the symbolism. Zechariah had to do this too. Back in Zechariah 6, at the end of the night vision, Zechariah has to make a crown and crown the high priest Joshua and then take the crown and deposit it inside the temple. The idea is not that the priest is going to reign. The idea is that a priest king is coming, that God is sending his Messiah. And in real life, they're acting out the symbolism of that message. And so that's what happens here in Zechariah 11. Zechariah the prophet apparently later in life, is now set out to work as a shepherd. He's going to go and and embody the message that we saw in Zechariah 10, that rebuke to the bad shepherds. He's going to actually act it out. So in chapter 10, we had a condemnation of the corrupt leaders of Israel, and now Zechariah is going to act out that condemnation and its consequences. He's going to show us what judgment on bad leaders looks like, and also what it looks like for the people who follow those leaders. And in a nutshell, here's how it goes. Zechariah becomes a prophet. Sorry, he becomes a shepherd. He is a prophet who becomes a shepherd. He equips himself for shepherd work. He has a rod and a staff, two staffs, which he names favor and union. So these are symbolic favor, symbolic of God's grace, union, symbolic of the community of the covenant, the north and the south combined together, Israel and Judah as one covenant people. And so he takes charge of the flock. He tends to the flock and protects it from exploitation, from slaughter. This was a flock that was going to be just sent to slaughter and killed, but instead now a good shepherd takes control of it. He nurtures it. He protects it. He drives off three bad shepherds who were leading it to destruction, now he is going to restore this flock. It doesn't work that way because the flock rejects the good shepherd. They despise the good shepherd. And as a result, that relationship is severed. Zechariah breaks these staffs and symbolically shows the rift in the relationship between God and those who have rejected him. And then he's asked to take on a second role. He's acted out the role of a good shepherd, and now he comes back, and he's told to act out the role of a bad shepherd. So now the prophet, as bad shepherd, leads the flock to slaughter. 
to destruction, which is the consequence of rejecting the good shepherd. When they reject the good leader, they're handed over to the bad leaders who destroy them for a quick profit. The symbolism, the message behind this shepherding is pretty clear. And it can be summed up in these words from John's Gospel, chapter 1. John writes, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Zechariah is showing us, through these prophetic visions, what the ministry of Jesus will be like when Jesus comes. We've already seen in the previous chapter that God is sending a good shepherd. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But now we get another aspect of what's going to happen. The good shepherd is going to come and he's going to do what a good shepherd does for the flock, but the flock will reject him. John says he will come to his own people, but his own people will not receive him. And so here in this vision, we have acted out for us a sobering reality. That the good shepherd who comes to tend the flock, to care for it, is actually rejected. And the consequence of that rejection is judgment. Because when the flock rejects its shepherd, there's now no one to stand between the flock and punishment. So to understand all this, we have to ask ourselves these questions of valuation. What is the value of the flock to the sheep dealers? When the sheep dealers, when the bad leaders and their minions look at the flock, what value, what price do they place upon it? Chapter 11 is interesting because of the way that it's structured. If you look at the text, you'll notice there are these these brief verses at the beginning and at the end that kind of bookend the action in between. Those verses, poetry, judgment, those are pronouncements, oracles, against these bad leaders. They are repeating the judgment that we've already seen from chapter 10. The bad leaders, the bad shepherds will wail as their glory is ruined. They're described here as worthless because they desert the flock. Now, we've already touched lightly in the past on the prophetic hints at things to come. We saw already uh, an invasion route that is described in Zechariah's prophecy that actually corresponds to the path that Alexander the Great takes later on down the line when he invades and defeats Persia. And now we see this again in the opening verses here. We have another geographical uh, reference. Uh, All trees are mentioned here because the trees are the symbols of the leaders. Those trees are being humbled and burned down. And they are being done in such a way that resembles actually another invasion, this time by the Romans, Uh, the emperor Vespasian, who comes down and finally in AD 70 ends up destroying the temple that has been rebuilt during the lifetime of Zechariah. That makes sense because that places the events of this chapter in the time frame of the life of Jesus. And of course, the symbolism being acted out is all about the ministry of Jesus, the good shepherd who comes and is rejected by Jerusalem. There's a judgment that follows that. That judgment, in this case, is acted out by those Roman trees. When you think about the way that 
the bad leaders regard the flock, they see the flock as something to be exploited. The reason why this is a flock doomed to slaughter is that you can make fast money by killing off the sheep because you don't need to keep paying shepherds. You don't need to do all of the the rigmarole of maintaining them. The good shepherd would take those sheep out into pasture. He would guide them and he would direct them and they could be shorn and their wool used for things, but then the sheep, they grow back their wool and they create value again and again over time. As they are nurtured, they contribute. But if you're not interested in the long-term commitment that that requires, you could just take all the sheep to the slaughterhouse and get a quick payoff. Like just get some cash and kill the flock. There's no value in the future, but maybe you don't care about that. You're just looking for a quick payment. That's the indictment against the bad leaders of Israel. They exploit the people for a quick return. But they're not thinking about how to nurture the people and promote their flourishing. Instead, they're just looking at how to exploit them and and squeeze more out of those people. A good shepherd doesn't kill off the sheep for profit. He nurtures the sheep. He maintains them. And he helps them by leading them into flourishing. He doesn't lead them to destruction. Because a bad shepherd exploits the flock for a quick buck sells them off to take the payment. Now, throughout Scripture, when bad kings or other kinds of leaders are condemned, the basis of that condemnation is exactly this tendency towards exploitation, that they take the power that is given to them and they use it wrongly. They use it to take advantage of people and not to serve them. But the right use of authority is to cultivate and to protect and to serve those who are under that authority to build up the potential of the flock so that it can be realized. That is why authority is entrusted to leaders. But exploitation is a sinful corruption of authority. That of serving, the bad shepherds use the flock for their own ends. This is what another prophet, Samuel, in 1 Samuel 8 said, was exactly what was going to happen. When the people cried out to God and said, give us a king like all the other nations, the prophet warned them, That what you're asking for, if you get it, will lead to your exploitation and ultimately your destruction. And their response was, yeah, but we want it. We still want it. And that's a response I think we can relate to. Our worldly leaders devour us. The warning that Samuel gave is a warning that we need to hear as well. That we are surrounded by leaders and influences who are leading us to destruction but we follow willingly. Our worldly leaders, they're not shepherding us. They're eating us up. They're feeding us to the slaughter for their own gain. They're not protecting us from judgment and punishment. They're leading us into it. We're complicit in our own destruction because we follow them. We've been warned where this leads. And we say, yeah, but I want it. The Puritan author Lewis Bailey, in his book, The Practice of Piety, devotes a section to what he calls the hindrances to piety, what it is that makes it so hard for us to follow after God. And one of the hindrances that he points to is the example of great people, he calls them, the example of our leaders. He writes this, the evil example of great people 
the practice of whose profane lives they prefer for their imitation before the precepts of God's holy word, so that when they see the greatest men in the state and many chief gentlemen in their country to make neither care nor conscience to hear sermons, receive the communion, not to sanctify the Lord's Sabbaths, but to be swearers, adulterers, carousers, oppressors, then they think that the using of these holy ordinances are not matters of so great importance. For if they were, such great and wise men would not set so little value on them. He was writing in 1611, and we don't talk in quite such a convoluted way any longer. But basically what he's saying, when we look to our leaders and they neglect the things of God, we naturally conclude that the things of God must not be that valuable. Because if they were, why wouldn't the greatest of us pay more attention to them? And so our leaders lead us to destruction by not leading us towards God. As we've seen before, the good news is judgment is coming on bad shepherds. We're not defending God-given authority and saying you should follow authority no matter what it does because God gave it. Obviously, corrupt authorities should be resisted. But the good news is that corrupt leaders will be punished. That the unfaithful shepherds will come to judgment. But in the meantime, those who follow them are being led to slaughter. So don't do it. Don't follow. Question. Because our worldly leaders don't place the right value on our eternal souls. What is the value of a good shepherd to the sheep? To consider the work of a shepherd, you would think that a good shepherd would be of infinite value. Think of what a shepherd does for the sheep. He leads them to flourishing, not destruction. We follow the example of a good shepherd, we will be led nearer and nearer to God. We will be shaped more and more to be what we were made to be. A good shepherd also drives out the bad shepherds who exploit the flock. He protects us. He defends us from those who seek to harm us. He also stands between the flock and its destroyers. In other words, He prevents the just punishment for sin that all of this slaughter represents. He doesn't let us go to the slaughter whether we deserve it or not. How do you put a price on that? Impossible to do because this is priceless work. And yet, in Zechariah's case, as he did this work, as he protected the flock, he says, they also detested me. The flock doesn't value the good shepherd rightly, and the evidence is that they reject him. They don't know how good they have it. They don't appreciate the protection that he gives them. They liked it better when they were being exploited. The consequence to this rejection, because of the rejection, the shepherd breaks his two staffs, favor and union. Breaking the staff of favor symbolizes the end of God's protection over these people who have rejected him. There's now nothing standing between the people and their judgment. So that Zechariah says, what is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. That breaking of the staff of God's favor is a terrible thing. But then there's the breaking of the staff of union, which destroys the bond between Israel and Judah. That's the northern and the southern kingdoms. And now, They've been severed, but there's a, a deeper significance to this severing because this is a division now within the covenant community. But that those 
who, although born into this covenant community, reject the good shepherd, there's now a rift between them and those who believe and follow the good shepherd. C.S. Lewis once, when he was writing about the nature of faith, said that to have faith in God is basically to pray to him and say, thy will be done. And that to reject God is basically to pray to him and say, my will be done. But in both cases, it's an expression of willingness. And that's what we see here. The flock willingly repudiates the good shepherd who seeks to protect them. The thing that should give you pause here as you consider how to rightly value the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is that the flock rejects him in favor of the shepherds they had before. They don't like the way things have changed. They don't like the boundaries that he's given them. They don't like the fact that his rod and staff are there to comfort them. They don't like it. They preferred things the way they were when they were being consumed. They are, in other words, willing and complicit in their own destruction. And I think that may be the most human thing in this chapter. The thing most relatable to us is the sense in which we abet our own destruction. Even when presented with things that we ought to cherish, we discount them. And then when presented with things that we ought to turn our back on and say are worthless, we spend everything in order to pursue them. Even though these things destroy us, we spend ourselves so that we might embrace them. Because humans are their own worst enemies. If we're going to be saved, ultimately we have to be saved from ourselves. Because we don't know how to rightly value anything. When we ask, what is the shepherd worth? The answer to the flock here in Zechariah 11 is basically nothing. He's worth nothing to them. They reject him. They choose their own destruction. Now, are they right to value him at nothing? Only if there is no justice. They are right to value Christ at nothing if there is no punishment to come. If there will be no justice for sin, if we won't have to answer for the wrong that we've done, then we don't need anyone to stand between us and that justice. And the offer of a Savior is basically worthless to us. But is that really true? Do you believe that that is really true? Don't you know yourself well enough to know that that is not the case? Our self-destructive urges themselves are enough, I think, to refute the idea that there is no justice coming. The fact that we are prone to devouring ourselves and one another is reason enough to believe that there's something wrong with the human condition and we should long for a good shepherd to protect us from ourselves. The flock value him at nothing. For the sheep dealers, the destroyers of the flock, they don't actually value him at nothing. They do set a price. They pay the money in valuation of the work of a shepherd. They value that work at 30 pieces of silver, which is a significant number if you know your New Testament. It's actually a significant number if you know your Old Testament. Because in Exodus chapter 21, you find out why 30 pieces of silver is the price here, and also 
in Matthew 26, the price that is paid to Judas when he betrays the good shepherd Jesus to the Romans. If you go back to Exodus 21, you'll discover that if you have a slave and your slave is gored by an ox and killed, whoever's ox that is owes you a price in compensation for the loss of that life. What he owes you is 30 shekels of silver. So the value placed on the work of the shepherd here and the value placed on the life of the shepherd in Matthew 26 is the same price as the price paid for the life of a slave bored by an ox. In other words, it's a contemptuous price. If someone asks you to set a price on something and you say, back then, 30 pieces of silver, this is like saying you're worth as much as a slave. It just happened to be killed by a farm animal. Zechariah recognizes that this is a contemptible sum and he follows the instructions he receives. He throws the money to the potter inside the temple. That too has a resonance in Matthew's gospel because when Judas returns the blood money that he's paid to the priests in the temple, they don't put it back in the treasury because it's blood money. That would be wrong. They definitely don't want to do anything wrong. So they use that money to buy a field from a potter and they use that field as a cemetery to bury people very poor people. And so there is an interesting fulfillment of this prophecy in the life of Jesus has to do with this placing of value on his life. I asked you, was the flock right to value Jesus' life at nothing? And I'd like you to think about this. Were the destroyers right to value Jesus' life at, at 30 pieces of silver? Not entirely, but they weren't entirely wrong either. If you think about it in a strange and ironic way, there's something beautiful about this price that is paid because Jesus himself made himself into a servant. They're paying the price of a slave's life for Christ. But Christ made himself into a slave on our behalf. Philippians 2, Paul describes it this way. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The price they put on his life was contemptuous, but in a beautiful irony, it illustrated the price that he himself had set upon him. Because Jesus, whose life was of infinite value, became a servant, lowered himself and became one of us so that this price might be paid. The real question that we ought to think about is what is the value of the flock to the good shepherd? Now here, if we think about the value of the flock to the shepherd, there's an easy way to go and a hard way to go. As we try to apply these thoughts to our lives, the easy way to go is something like this. So consider the work of Jesus. Ask yourself, what is that work worth? What is it worth to have Jesus stand between you and judgment? What is it worth to escape the punishment for your sins and not be consumed by them? If you can answer that question honestly, then surely the value of that is is everything. 
It is worth everything. Like this is the treasure. This is the pearl of great price, to use Jesus' metaphor, for which a person would sell everything he has in order to attain it. What wouldn't you pay to escape judgment? That's the easy application, and we could stop there and leave and say, yes, what wouldn't I pay? I will give everything so that I might have this great gift. The problem is the sheep in Zechariah 11 already know this. They already know that to have forgiveness of their sins is priceless. They already know and have had proclaimed to them over and over again that this is the truth. The problem is they have an urge toward destruction. They know better. They know what is good for them, but they do what is bad for them anyway. They choose what is bad for them anyway, and so do you. Because remember, the problem isn't just that we don't have a shepherd to stand between us and judgment. The problem is that we don't know how to value things rightly so that even when we have one, we set no stock on it. We don't think it's important. That's the mystery that all of us have to confront. What is it about us? Why do we as human beings run toward destruction? Why do we do the thing that we know will harm us? There's a solution. You see this, self-destructive people, what's at the bottom of that? What's at the bottom of it is a belief that you deserve it. We choose self-destruction because we think we deserve self-destruction. Because we believe that destruction is all we're good for. Because we don't know how to value things rightly, including ourselves. We do not know what the right price to set on our own souls is. So we can't ask ourselves what value could we place in our eternal souls. We don't know how to do that, so we have to ask someone who knows. We have to ask God. What price does He set on us? What price would He pay for His flock? This is the value that He sets in the lives of His people. Jesus could have been in no doubt about the value of his work and the value of his life. He knew it. The astonishing thing is he came anyway. He lowered himself anyway. He didn't struggle with our inability to put the right price on things. Jesus knew exactly what he was giving, exactly what he was paying, and he paid it anyway. He gave himself as payment for us. Life was of infinite worth, and yet he, he became the form of a human being, the form of a slave. And then he gave up that life for the price of a slave. And the only explanation for why he would do this is that unlike our destroyers, Jesus used a different math. The question for him was not, what is the value of my life? The question was, what is the value of yours? And the only way we can answer that question is to ask what was paid for it. If things are worth what people will pay for them, then you must be worth what Christ is willing to pay for you. What is the value of the flock to the shepherd? Whatever he paid for it. That's what it's worth. 
bad shepherd looking to profit off the flock. The sheep are worth whatever he can squeeze out of them. But to the good shepherd, the sheep were worth his life. Good shepherd didn't sell the sheep to make his price. The flock was the shepherd's price. He paid for it with his blood. Gave himself for his flock. So before you say no to Jesus, and before you say yes to judgment, reflect on this. Meditate on these words. Your heart may say that you're worth nothing but destruction, but your Savior says that you're better than that. Your Savior says that you are worth more than that. Don't be like the sheep who despise their shepherd. Don't throw the gift that you've been given away. Instead, repent and believe. Be united with your good shepherd, Jesus. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.